God's work in so many faraway places where people have never heard the gospel, never heard the truth. And I just want to say thank you for your giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It really does make a difference. And only eternity will really tell all the difference that it has made. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the wise men and the uh, and their seeking of a newborn king. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to look with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. <clears throat> Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, uh, or when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests, priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, our hearts are filled with joy today, knowing that you have sent to us the greatest gift that we could ever receive, your Son, Jesus Christ. God, you are so incredibly gracious and loving and kind. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word that tells us about it. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us understanding. And so we pray for the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would fill this room, that you would open the eyes and hearts of your people and and of those, Lord, who have never come to trust you. And that today, as we seek to know you, that God, that you would reveal yourself in a full and saving way in our lives, that you would save souls, that you would encourage believers, and we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a man named Forrest Finn. He is a, an art dealer. He is a multimillionaire, and he's now in his 80s. 
And a few years ago, Mr. Finn published a memoir that included a poem that he had written. And in this poem, he, he reveals that he has hidden a treasure set, a treasure chest somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and this tr- treasure chest contains somewhere between two and five million dollars worth of gold and jewels. Uh, the poem that he's written contains at least nine cryptic clues as to the location. And he gives some details about the, tre- uh, the this treasure chest that he's hidden. He, he describes it as an ornate Romanesque box, 10 by 10 inches, weighing 40 pounds. And it, it, it's somewhere, he says, between uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the Canadian border at an altitude above 5,000 feet. Dateline NBC reports that an estimated 350,000 people have searched for this, uh, this treasure chest that Mr. Finn has hidden ever since reading that poem. Last summer, a 53-year-old name, a man by the name of Jeff Murphy was hiking in Yellowstone National Park, and he disappeared. Well, in, in June, uh, park authorities found his body, discovered that he had fallen about 500 feet after he had accidentally slipped from a ledge above. But Jeff Murphy wasn't just on any ordinary hike. He was looking for the treasure that Mr. Finn had hidden. And he is now the fourth man to lose his life while pursuing this treasure hidden by Mr. Finn. You know, when I, when I think about Mr. Finn's um, hidden treasure and the lengths that people will go to, to find it, it, it reminds me that we are all really searching for real life, for meaningful life. We're all searching for uh, deep and abiding love. We're all searching for real joy. See, people all over the world are searching for fulfillment in life. The problem is, is that we're all searching in all the wrong places. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ alone is God's treasure that he has given to us. He is God's perfect love. He is God's uh, full and meaningful life. He is our joy. And when you find Jesus, you have found a true treasure. But when you search for those treasures in the wrong place, you, you are misled and you put your very life at risk. You see, Jesus came not only as the king of creation, but as God's treasure of eternal life, perfect love, and real joy. And one of the things about, you know, Christmas that we love is seeing the joy on the faces of the people that we love when they receive a gift that they really want. Don't you delight in that when you see that that joy on their face? You see, and that's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. See, Jesus is the gift.
that God has given to us. Jesus is the one that brings joy and delight to his people when we understand who he really is. Jesus is God's gift to us at Christmas. And when Jesus is ruling and reigning in your life, you have God's greatest treasure. See, that's what the wise men discovered when they received Jesus as their king. And like the wise men, you can receive Jesus as king and you can rejoice in God's greatest gift. Now, the wise men show us two ways to receive King Jesus. First, you receive King Jesus when you sincerely seek him. You receive him as king. See, when, when, you, when you seriously, sincerely seek him. Look at what Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, here we are introduced to the Magi, or the wise men, as they are popularly known. Unfortunately, there are many misconceptions about the wise men or the, or the Magi. Uh, Marvin R. Vincent, who has written uh, four volumes of New Testament word studies, says this, many absurd, uh, many absurd traditions and guesses respecting the visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular belief and into, Christ, and into Christian art or Christ, Christmas art. Uh, they were said to be kings and three in number. They were said to be representatives of three families, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and therefore one of them is pictured as an Ethiopian. Their names are given as Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchor, and their three skulls said to have been discovered in the 12th century by Bishop Reinald of Cologne are now exhibited in a priceless casket in a great cathedral in that city, end quote. Now, you can see that there are a great many erroneous beliefs about the Magi. And all we really know from the New Testament about them is that it says, Matthew tells us, they came from the East. That's what we know from the, from the New Testament. We don't know their names. We don't know how many of them there were. There were at least two because Magi is plural. We don't know how they arrived. We don't know if they were riding camels or elephants or if they took a greyhound. We don't know. And you see, we can, however, glean some information about these men from historical uh, texts, from uh, the Bible, and from an ancient uh, historian known, known as Herodotus. Contrary to every nativity scene that you've ever seen, Contrary to most Christmas plays that you have seen, Matthew chapter 2 describes events that happened sometime after the birth of Jesus. Not hours or, or, or days, but months or years. They show up much later. And, and in most nativity scenes, uh, you've got, Joe, you've got uh, the, the, the wise men huddled around the manger with Joseph and Mary. But see, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, uh, 
Matthew tells us that the wise men came later. Mary and Joseph are no longer at the, the manger. They're no longer in the stable. Uh, in, instead, they're now in a house, it tells us, in Bethlehem. The shepherds that visited Jesus on the night of his birth have, have long come and gone. Jesus is no longer a newborn infant. Uh, rather, he is described for us as a child, uh, uh, like a, a toddler. And verse 1 tells us that the Magi arrived in Jerusalem during the days of Herod the Great, seeking one who had been born the king of the Jews. Now, the question comes, well, well, who are these guys? And why would they be seeking the king of the Jews? You know, that, that raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Well, the Greek word that's used here is magos, M-A-G-O-S. And it's, and it's transliterated for us in the Bible as magi. It can't be translated because it is actually the name of an ancient tribe. It's a, it's a name rather than a word to be translated. And, um, uh, the, uh, like the, like the Levites were a tribe of priests in Israel, the magi were a tribe of priests in me, among the Medes. You know, heard the Medes, Medes and the Persians? Well, they come from a place near Babylon, uh, an area known as Parthia. We call that same area today, we call it Iran and Iraq. It, don't, that, it kind of overlaps there. And the, the, the Magi were not kings. Now, we sing about them. We sang about that this morning. We sing, you know, we three kings of the Orient are, but they weren't kings. They held a position in their culture somewhere between um, a scientist and and a sorcerer. Because, see, they didn't make a distinction between science and superstition. It was all, it all went together. And the original magi were priests of the, of the most ancient form of Zoroastrianism. Now, if you know anything about that, you know there's some incredible similarities between that and Judaism. They believe in one uncreated God who, who made all things and held all things together. But there's some big differences, too. Uh, they were involved in sorcery, astrology, wizardry, divination of dreams, and other forms of, of uh, soothsaying and witchcraft. Uh, in short, they were occult practitioners, and, and, and our world, our word magic comes from their name. So the, the Magi were a curious group. I mean, they were, they were indiscriminate collectors of information. Every area of life, you know, from uh, agriculture to uh, uh, medicine to uh, the legal system, uh, mathematics, uh, astronomy, any, any area of life, they were collectors of information. They put it all together, and it, was, it wasn't, didn't go together consistently. It didn't make a lot of sense. It didn't make turn, sense in terms of a worldview, but they, just, they collected all the information that they could. They were, they were collectors of information. And, and really, uh, they loved the study of the stars, and, which had some scientific and mathematical elements to it. But they also loved the study of the stars because they were into astronomy, I mean, to astrology. Now, astrology is simply superstition and fortune-telling. The reason they're trying to study the stars is because they want to know what the star is going to tell them about the future. And so they they had some mathematical and scientific elements, but they also put it all together with their superstition. 
So it was all blended together. But you see, there's, here's, here's what happens. Uh, with, this is where the term wise men came in. Because they had all kinds of information. If somebody wanted to know something, where did you go? You go to these guys that have been collecting all this information. They were kind of the, the Wikipedia of that day. You know, it didn't always make sense and it wasn't always true. But it, it was, you know, that was there. You could go and read about it, hear about it. And, and so kings would seek them out, want to hear their views on things, want to know about what they thought about was going to happen in the future based on their study of all this information. So, and as a result of this, uh, people sought them out everywhere. They were considered wise men. They acted as advisors to the king. And they, and they interpreted dreams. You remember that in the book of Daniel? That was one of the things that they were doing, interpreting dreams for people. Now, uh, in addition, no Persian could become king without going through a rigorous training with these magi and learn all their, their, their information and their truths. You had to be one of them. So in this sense, they became known as kingmakers. So you, they were the door through which you entered the, the, the path of royalty. So this is one of the reasons that, man, Herod was so upset when he understands who they are. They're kingmakers. Maybe they've come to train this young baby. and They give legitimacy to a, a, a prospective king. So they're looking to figure this out, who he is. And the Magi were especially intrigued with what the stars might tell them about the future. Now imagine their surprise one night when suddenly they saw a light in the sky, a star unlike anything that they've ever seen before. Now they they have observed the stars. They are charting the stars. They know where, They can predict where a star is going to be at any given time. And suddenly this star appears in the sky and it it does something that they've never seen before. It comes and hovers over one spot. It's stationary over one. What is going on here? They can't figure this out. And so it was so intriguing to them that they leave their homeland and they make a, a journey, this long journey of thousands of miles to investigate this incredible phenomena that they have seen. So, uh, somehow, they came to Jerusalem with the, the understanding that this star marked the, the birth of the king of the Jews. Now, we don't understand that. We can't, can't tell how they knew that. But they knew this. They were wise men indeed in this regard. And, and these, the visit of the, of the Magi reminds us that though Jesus was born king of the Jews... God sent his son into the world, not just for the Jewish people, but for all humanity. For people as far away as Babylon, and, and praise God, for people as far away as we are. So the wise men offer some powerful lessons about how to seek Jesus. First, to, to seek Jesus, follow God's light. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2 says, uh, For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Notice they saw his star. His star. The question is often asked, well, what, what, what was this star? The star of Bethlehem. Well, all kinds of speculation has been made about it. For many years, uh, there was a planetarium in, in Chicago called the Adler Planetarium that uh, put on a show called Star of Wonder, and it described all the, the ideas that astronomers had about the nature of this particular star. 
astronomer Johannes Kepler believed that the Magi saw a supernova or the birth of a new star. This happens when a new star is born and there's an explosion of light that sometimes can be seen for weeks or or months. Sometimes it's so bright that you can actually see it during the daytime. The problem is that there's no no record, there's nothing on the charts that would indicate that there was a supernova anywhere around that time. Other astronomers have suggested that this was a comet. Now, comets go around the the sun in an elliptical uh, orbit. And normally, most of the time, they're far away. But when they get close to the earth, they're especially bright in the nighttime sky. But again, the problem is that there is no no evidence. There's nothing that would indicate there was a comet during this time. Other astronomers have suggested that, uh, that this was a planetary conjunction. For example, when the, the uh, planets um, Saturn and Jupiter and Mars align as they're viewed from the Earth in their orbit, uh, they produce a, a much brighter light in the nighttime sky. Again, they, they align every 805 years. Uh, if you figure it out mathematically, couldn't have been that time. It wasn't happening then. So, you see, the really the problem is is that none of these natural phenomena seem to correspond to what the wise men saw. Uh, what did they see? Well, they saw a heavenly light that appeared, disappeared, and then reappeared. They saw a light that stood over a place and then moved and then stood in another place and stood in another place. They saw something that they didn't see a natural phenomena. They saw a supernatural phenomena. And I really believe that the best explanation for the star of Bethlehem is when you go back to the Old Testament and you see that the Shekinah glory of God guided the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness. And that pillar of fire would at night would go and it would stand over the tabernacle representing the presence of God among, among his people. And then it would move again. It, it guided them. It directed them. It's the same kind of light that shone around the, the shepherds out in the field. It says the glory of the Lord shone around them. And I say I believe it's simply this, that it was a supernatural uh, phenomena. It, it, was a, it was a supernatural light uh, brought about by a supernatural God to mark a supernatural birth of God's supernatural son. This was a supernatural event. Now, many centuries before Jesus was born, God had given a prophecy that this star would appear. In Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, God speaks through the lips of a, of a pagan prophet named Balaam. And Balaam really is speaking against his will. And it says there, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. And that was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, the birth of Jesus. And that prophecy, see, became a reality when these men traveled to Bethlehem. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 of Matthew. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Friends, if you want to follow, if you want to pursue Jesus, you want to seek him, then follow the light that God gives you. In the case of the Magi, God gave them a a literal light. 
to follow. And they followed it. And it says that it came and, verse 9, and stood over the place where the child was. Now listen carefully what I'm about to say. This is, this is really important. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 tells us that there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Do you hear that? None. Nobody seeks for God on their own. But you seeking God is always in response to God taking the initiative in our, in our lives. God took the initiative. God put a literal star in the sky for these men. And it was a light, literally and figuratively, that initiated their search. Why did God use a star? Because that was what the Magi were most interested in. That's where their eyes were already fixed, was on the heavens. And see, when God begins to initiate in some of our lives, oftentimes he uses something where our eyes are already focused. The things that we are most interested in, that's where God often gets our attention. God uniquely uses our circumstances. Uh, he, he, uses, he may use your family, your work, your school, a unique opportunity, uh, some ability you have, or even a crisis. But somehow God gets your attention and he, and he initiates something so that you begin to ask questions, that you begin to search and seek out answers from God. For me, it was the creation-evolution debate in college. Um, I was in the science department, and all my professors were teaching me to look at the world through the lens of evolution. But I had been taught creation, that God created the world. So the question came to me, well, which is it? I really, for a while, I, I, I tried to, to, uh, reconcile it by saying, well, you can believe in both. You can believe that God created the world, but there's, but he also did, he did it through evolution. But then I heard someone else articulating my particular position, and I thought, that can't be right. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. And so, you know what? I began to search for answers. I got so desperate, I started reading the Bible. Can you imagine that? And, and, and then God began to bring people into my life as I was asking some questions. People that began to answer some questions. They introduced me to other resources, institutions for creation research, uh, books, and so forth. And, and as, I, as I searched, God kept giving me more light and more light uh, uh, until finally uh, the, the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man, came into my heart. And when I trusted Jesus, friend... All of a sudden, the light really came on. Everything really made sense. See, the problem is not that there's not light. The problem is is that we turn away from the light. We don't seek. We're not taking the initiative. With we're not we're not responding to the initiation of God in our lives. If you're going to seek Jesus, you must follow the light that He gives you. And to seek Jesus, you need to know God's word. You know, when when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they were looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod brought all the uh, priests and the scribes together, and he asked the question, where is the Messiah to be born? And you know what? They answered the 
that question without a problem. It was no secret. For over 700 years before, Micah, the prophet, had pinpointed the place of the Messiah's birth. And it's given for us in Matthew 2 and verse 5. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. They knew the word of God. They knew how to answer that question. And yet when they heard from these magi who were seeking the king of, of, of Israel about the fact that they had seen a star and they answered that question, you know what? They didn't even bother to go five miles down the road to, to Bethlehem to check it out. Yet when those magi went, took that five-mile trip to Bethlehem seeking Jesus... They found him. Friend, when you seek Jesus, you'll find him. Did you know that? You know, and listen, uh, when you search the word of God, you will find Jesus revealed to you. Jesus will direct you by his word. Did you know that the Bible is God's message to you? There's light. Friend, you've got a light that is far greater than one in the sky. You've got the very light of God himself. The whole heart of God revealed to you. And I really want to encourage you as we go into 2020 that you make searching and knowing the word of God a priority. You really need to know what God says. And don't be worried about, you know, i got to read so many chapters i got to do. Don't worry about how much of God's Word you get through. Worry about how much of God's Word is getting through to you. Let it change you. Let it have a difference in your life. See, it's sort of like a snowfall. You know, one flake of snow doesn't make much difference. But when snow begins to accumulate, it piles up and it makes a big difference. Right? Do you know that the Word of God is like that? Oh, so I'm sitting down and read a chapter. Okay, well, that may not make all that much of a difference. But cumulatively, as you read the Word of God, as you are taught the Word of God, if you hear the Word of God preached, it, it adds up. And you know, I understand, one of the things I've come to understand as a pastor, that I'm not going to preach one sermon that's going to change everybody's lives. But the consistent, faithful teaching of the Word of God cumulatively has a powerful effect in, life, in people's lives. It does transform their lives. And that's one of the reasons it's so important for you to be consistently reading the Word of God and consistently under the hearing of the Word of God. Because God uses it. Know God's Word. And then seek to obey God's... If you're going to seek Him, seek to obey God's voice. The, 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 the chief priests and scribes knew Micah's prophecy. Um, again, they, they, they knew that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They, did, they didn't go. They didn't go check it out. But listen, when the wise men seriously saw him, they found Jesus. Listen to what Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13 says. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, God promises that when you obey his voice and seek him, that you will find him. How many of you uh, have played uh, hide-and-go-seek recently? Yeah? Yeah. 
I played with my grandchildren, and uh, it's so much fun. How many of you have ever seen the rules for hide-and-go-seek written? I'll see a hand. How do we know how to play hide-and-go-seek when there's no rules? You know, well, there are rules, aren't there? There's a person who does the seeking. What are they called? It. You're it, right? And, and, and then we just, know, we just know that, not to be confused with cousin it. But and, and if, if, if you're it, then your job is to go and seek for the, whoever is hiding, right? And, and what do you have to do before you go seeking? You have to count, right? And you, so then you gotta count to, to 20 or whatever it is they tell you. And then when you've counted, what do you say? Ready or not, here I come. Now, where did you learn that? Where's, what book is that in? You know, but, but we all know, here, ready or not, here I come. And, and let me ask you this. How many of you would rather be it or rather be one who's hiding? Now, most people like to be the one that hides. I always love to, to hide, you know. I always going to find me a place nobody would ever find me. I remember one time I was hiding and, and, I, and I thought, I, I'm going to hide in the well. You know, nobody would think to look in the well. And somehow I got in that well and kind of pushed my body and was holding myself over the mouth of that well with my feet and my, and my back. And then I realized when I got there, oh, this was not a good idea. <laughs> Because I'm like this, I'm looking up and I'm thinking about what's below me. Well, this is not working out well. And it took me a long time to worm my way, finally to grab hold and get out of there. I learned my lesson about hiding in the well. But you know, sometimes we, if you think about it, sometimes we feel like that's the way God is with us. We feel like we're it. And God is hiding in a place where we can't find him. We we say you ready now? Here I come, and we're looking. But boy, he he's just in a place where we would never think to look. You ever, you, sometimes we feel that way. But let, do you do you know what? That's not the truth. God is not hiding from you. God wants you to know, and He says this. He says, "You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart." If you want to know Jesus, you can. He's taking the initiative. Do you know what today is? Today is an initiative from God. Today, you're hearing the voice of God through a person, simply articulating what he's already said, and it becomes an initiative in your life. Listen, God's saying, listen, you, you, can, you can have a relationship with me. You can find me. But if you want, you've got to want it. You've got to respond to my initiation. If you'll do it, you can find me. See, and once you're saved, God wants you to know his purposes and plans. He wants you to follow his light. He wants you to study his word. He wants you to obey his voice, and he will reveal himself. He revealed himself to the magi. See, they, what did they do? They responded to his initiate, they followed that star thousands of miles. They followed the light. Then they went to Bethlehem. They heard the word. 
And they heard what God said about where he would be born, and they went there. And what did they find when they got there? They found Jesus. Friends, that, God, will, God will work in your life. You seek him, he will lead you there. You can know King Jesus personally when you seek him. And secondly, you receive King Jesus when you humbly serve him. The Magi, they left their, they left Jerusalem, made their way to Bethlehem. Miraculously, the star guided them to the place where the child was. And it says in, in chapter 2 and verse 11, after coming into the house, notice, not the manger, but coming into the house, they saw the child, not the infant, with Mary, his mother. And see, just as the wise men teach us some lessons about seeking Jesus, they also teach us some lessons about serving him. First of all, serve Jesus with your worship. The last part of verse two, or verse 11 says, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Now, the Greek word uh, worship there uh, is a word that literally means to kiss. And it comes from the idea of throwing yourself on the ground and kissing the feet or the hem of the garment of the person of whom you are worshiping. These magi were grown men, probably older men, well-respected, sought out, and yet when they see Jesus, they fall on the ground in humility and they kiss his little feet. Why? Because they know that this child is not just a, a child. They know that this child is not just a king. They know that this child is, has, is divine and that he is deserving of their worship. Uh, and listen, the, the, the child that we celebrate at Christmas is not just a baby in a manger. I mean, praise God, he came from heaven as a baby in a manger, but, but he is the eternal king of creation. He is the king of kings, and he is worthy of our worship. And we bow down and, and worship him. The French general and emperor Napoleon Bonaparte once said, if Socrates were to enter the room, we would rise and honor him. But if Jesus came into the room, we would fall on our knees and worship him. Isn't that true? What a difference to rise for a dignitary or to fall on your face in worship. One of the best definitions of worship I've come across is from William Temple, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II. And he said, quote, worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Do you see that worship is not something that we work up? Worship is something that happens when we respond to our understanding of who God really is. It's a response to the revelation of the true nature of God. When you understand what God has really done for us, oh, it, then it, it becomes unnatural. It's not something we have to come in here and have to have sentimental music or excitement going on in order to worship. We worship because it's coming out of our heart from God. See, worship is saying, Jesus, I want your holiness to transform my consciousness. I want your truth to transform my mind. I want your beauty to transform my imagination. I want your love to transform my heart. I want your plans to transform my will. That's worship. It's a response to God. Humbly serve Jesus 
with your worship. And humbly serve Jesus with your treasure. See verse 11, the last part of that? He says, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now some people believe that there were, this is where they get the idea that there were three kings because there were three particular gifts. But the Bible simply doesn't specify that. Someone posted a a, a far side comic strip that uh, showed... um, the wise men at Bethlehem. Three of them are coming to the house where Jesus is. One of them is walking away. And the caption reads this. Unbeknownst to, to most theologians, there was a fourth wise man who was turned away for bringing fruitcake. Okay. Yeah. Should have been, right? You know, I believe that the, the fact that the Holy Spirit reveals these gifts tells us there is a spiritual significance to these gifts. Gold is a gift for a king. You know, gold symbolized Jesus' royalty and dominion. Frankincense was a, was, a, uh, was a perfume, basically, that was used in the temple and in sacrifices. It filled the temple with an aroma that was believed to be pre- pleasing to God. And see, it, it, it represents Jesus' divine nature and divinity. Myrrh... Uh, was uh, uh, something that was used to anoint the body of a dead person. They wrapped it in between the, the wrappings of a, of a, of a, of a cloth of a, of a dead person. They didn't know it. But in the gifts that they brought, these magi were prophesying what was going to happen to Jesus. They, they're prophesying that he, his sacrificial death. But there was also a simple significance there's spiritual significance, but there's, there's a simple significance. They were coming to visit a king. And in those days, nobody goes into a court of a king without bringing a gift. And so they, they bring gifts to show honor. And, and I think that's just a wonderful thing to do. I think when we come, you know, when, when we, you, you, there's a reason why we take up offerings in church. We take, we take up the offering because we bring a gift to honor Lord, it's part of the worship that we carry on here. And uh, Psalm 96 in verse 8 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. See, we, we serve him by bringing to him our praise and our treasures. And finally, you, you, you serve Jesus with your life. The, the wise men walked away from Bethlehem, changed. Verse 12 says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for, for their own country by another way. Now the Holy Spirit knew something that the Magi didn't. He knew Herod's evil intentions. And Herod had lied to the Magi. He had told them that he wanted to, to come and worship this king as well. But that wasn't true. And so God warned them in a dream, and it says they changed their course and they went back to their country another way. That's a reminder that when we meet Jesus, he changes the course of our life. He changes everything about your life. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures in all the world is 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
I cling to that verse because that was, I remember that day. I remember the day that the course of my life changed forever. The day I came to know Jesus. And the thing that has been said of me ever since then is people will say, man, you, I don't know you. You're not, you're not the old Kenny that I used to know. No, I'm not. Jesus changed the course of my life. And, he, and if you know him, friends, he will change the course of your life. And so we, we serve him with our life. We do what he wants. You see, they took heed to what God told them. They did what God told them to do. Evangelist uh, Lewis Powell tells about a wealthy European family that had a child, a young child been born. They wanted to have it baptized. And we're not uh, advocating uh, infant baptism, but just simply this was the case in these, in these people that he's telling about. Um, and so in order to, to make this a big occasion, they had a big party. They threw a big, big leaning in the wealthy, and they uh, were invited all these guests, and people began to come. And they, when his people would come, they had a servant that was coming and laying their coats on the, on the bedroom upstairs. Here they go, person after person. The house is full. Finally, they get to the point where they're about ready to uh, have the, the baptism, and they start looking for the baby, and they can't find the baby. They don't know where the baby is. Well, they call the nanny, and the nanny says, well, I put the baby in the first bedroom upstairs so I could hear if it was crying. They went upstairs, and they found underneath this pile of coats the baby. That often happens to Jesus at Christmas. He gets buried by all the other stuff that goes on at Christmas. All the other traditions, the parties, the things. Not that any of those things are bad, but that Jesus kind of gets lost in the midst of all that. And, and really, I think every Christmas, we need to always be asking ourselves, where's the baby? Where's Jesus? We need to be seeking him. Let me ask you, where are you right now in your seeking process of Jesus? Where are you? Are you seeking him? Are you really seeking Jesus? Have you found him? If you found him, are you serving him? Are you serving him with your worship? Are you serving him with your treasures? Are you serving him with your life? If you're not, maybe you haven't really found him. Maybe you're, maybe you're playing a game. Maybe that's not really true. I think the question we all ought to ask is, where's Jesus in the midst of all this? Let earth receive her king. He's come. He's available. He's, he's taken the initiative. Now we must receive him. And we receive him by faith. We trust in what God has revealed to us. Let me ask you, if you would, just to bow your heads, close your eyes.